Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. We lost our humanity, we lost our dignity, we got punished for something we did not do. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. Our young lives were flipped upside down. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello and welcome to World Business Report here on the BBC World Service. I'm Rahul Tan and plenty of economic data out on Thursday. We're going to try and make sense of it for you. Much of it coming from some of the world's biggest economies. We'll have a look at their temperature when it comes to economic growth. And on this special leap year day, we speak to the editor of a French newspaper, which only goes to print on the 29th of February. That's once every four years. It's not my fault if... Uh The, the 29th of February is only one time every four years. Not my fault. Would you like it more often? No, no. I'm too lazy for that. There we go. A man after my own heart there. But let us start in the United States, the world's largest economy, where President Joe Biden has asked the Commerce Department to investigate whether Chinese vehicle imports pose a national security risk. Mr Biden said in a written statement that he's worried that these vehicles could collect sensitive data about US citizens and infrastructure and send it back to China. His concerns come at a time when there are growing calls from major car makers in the United States and from unions there about the threat that the Chinese electric vehicle industry is posing to the UK car industry. So let's get more on this story. I've been speaking to Miles Yu. He's a former advisor on China to Mike Pompeo, who is Secretary of State in the Donald Trump administration. It's not necessarily just a matter of economic competition. Uh, first of all, uh, BYD is heavily subsidized. The reason they could sell cars so cheap, sometimes at half the price though, uh, of the market value, is because the government is subsidizing. Government but they, but they, face big, they face big tariffs in the U.S., don't they, above 25%? Not uh, high enough because they're not competing Uh, fairly, because uh, it is the, not a market move by the Chinese. So uh, you cannot. Their purpose is to dominate the market share in the United States. Uh, and uh, a Chinese company is not just a Chinese company. There is no such thing in the pure theoretical sense as a private Chinese company. Every Chinese company must comply by Chinese law to the demands of Chinese security and intelligence uh, organizations. This is the risk that we have to really, really take into consideration. That's why uh, EV is different from the ICE cars. EV is uh, connected. It's not interconnectedness globally that worries uh, American uh, authorities and opposes a serious and real national security concern. So this is something that I think the administration is doing good things and I don't think they're doing enough. Is the timing of this to do with the elections that are coming up? We're going to see candidates, if it is 
President Trump against President Biden again, taking very strong positions on China. Is this part of the Biden campaign, do you think? Uh, people might interpret that, but I don't think so. Number one, American campaign season is very long. So you, can, you cannot really connect everything that's going on uh, with the uh, campaign. I don't deny there is a possible connection. But I think this is basically you know, the China threat is not a Democratic or Republican issue. It's a consensus is a national issue. So you cannot really wrap everything into this campaign experience. I don't I think there's this is a real concerns and every American Republican Democrat uh, uh, will uh, will understand this. I don't think is there's a necessary connection. I'm, I'm very good if there is a competition for being getting correct on our China policy and not a good thing. You have been an advisor to Mike Pompeo when he was Secretary of State under the Trump administration. If you were there at this point in time, what would you do when it comes to Chinese EVs? Would you ban them? Would you raise the tariffs even more? First of all, I would basically ask the Chinese uh, or demand the Chinese companies such as uh, BYD to certify to the U.S. government that their operation in the United States, if they want to come in, would have nothing to do with the Chinese government. In other words, they are a private company competing uh, on fair terms with other American automakers, uh, including Tesla, right? So that's why we, we, we would impose the burden of proof on them. So that's, I don't think any company uh, in China can really do that, but that's a necessary measure. So I would recommend the government do that. Secondly, uh, if they fail to do that, uh, tariff is a necessary thing because tariff is not a best solution, but tariff is a necessary measure to force the non-compliant countries to, to compete in a very fair and uh, well, give me a figure. Way. What should the tariffs be? The tariff number de- is determined by uh, technical experts. Uh, I'm not a tax attorney. I'm not really a, a expert in that. But I do think the idea that uh, tariff can actually help uh, protect the national interest, uh, that is uh, not uh, in dispute in my mind. How do you think if we see the Biden administration put further regulations on Chinese electric vehicles and trucks, what sort of response will we see from China? Well, China has no ground to complain because the um, uh, news media constantly complain about the Americans move as if this is the, something that we cause the problem. China has a far more strict, far more restrictive measures against the American import to China. So uh, Europeans facing the same problem. So if, if you want to be fair, you have to really find the source of the problem. That is China, not the United States. We are a responsive uh, uh, nation, not a, a, a proactive nation to restrict our trade with China. Chinese market is very important. Chinese market is not only important to Europeans, but to Americans too. We have to figure out a way to compete with the Chinese companies, Chinese economy, fair and square. Emma Wall is with us from Hargreaves Lansdowne. Emma, it's an interesting timing, this, because Europe has a huge problem, doesn't it, when it comes to Chinese vehicles. But if you look at the US, the likes of BYD, which is the biggest of the Chinese electric car makers, they're hardly selling any cars there at the moment. No, perhaps not in the US, but globally, Chinese brands now represent around half of all electric vehicles sold. And a really interesting data flip happened in the last three months of 2023, which was it was the first time actually BYD sold more electric vehicles than Tesla. So that last quarter of 2023, over the year, Tesla sold more. But you can see the trajectory. And this is what's so interesting about Chinese manufacturers. They have the backing of the government, as your previous guest was saying, but they also have 
they have the supply chain, so they make more batteries than anyone else. In fact, they own more mines than anyone else. So they're owning the lithium that's coming out the ground, you know, the industrial metals that are needed to create electric vehicles. So they've come from a low base, but the pace mm. of the dominance is rapid. It is, it is indeed, and I'm sure that the US, one eye on Mexico, where the Chinese electric companies are looking to set up a number of factories there. Let us now take you away from the world's two largest economies to the fastest growing economy in the world. India published its latest GDP figures just a few hours ago. They were better than expected. Here with the details is our business correspondent, Archana Shukla, who's in India's commercial capital, Mumbai. Archana, tell us about the figures. Well, uh, the numbers did surprise. For the October and December quarter, GDP was recorded at 8.4% when the expectation from economists was that it would be somewhere between 66 to 7%. And uh, the full-year growth estimates have also been revised uh, to 7.6%. Uh, and this will make India the fastest-growing major economy in the world for a third year in a row. And coming just a month ahead of the central elections where Prime Minister Modi is seeking a third term in office, it bodes well for the government as well. But what drove these numbers were investments coming in the capital uh, 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 momentum, CAPEX momentum, basically manufacturing and construction space. We've seen some of the private sector investments also flow in, but the heavy lifting was done by the government spending on infrastructure. Some numbers that are still concerning, consumption numbers were weak. Mm. And, you know, India had the weakest monsoon rains this year, so agriculture also contracted quite a bit. Uh, but it does offer a good uh, solace to the central bank, who has been holding on to high interest rates, but higher growth rates does give them some room to delay rate cuts. And just briefly, if you don't mind, Archana, India, it's difficult, as it is with many economies sometimes, to measure how quickly it's growing because, you know, India has its organised <coughs> sector, it has its it's unorganized sector as well, and uh, still not as big as it used to be, but a fairly large black economy. Well, certainly, and, and, you know, there have been concerns that the GDP data does not capture the contribution of the unorganized sector. What do we mean by that? These are companies that are largely not uh, registered with the, with, with, uh, you know, they're not registered. They employ informal labor force, which means without written contracts, without mm. paid leaves or benefits, um, and they can be uh, let go. And that is the segment that, you know, has been working day in and day out. You know, we've seen a growing Gig economy with delivery workers, food delivery apps, etc., growing at much faster pace. You see the stock markets booming with these companies' stocks. Um, there are hawkers on the road, uh, and they are all not counted in the GDP numbers. Um, uh, you know, especially for a country where the working age population has swelled over one billion dollar. Uh, informal economy is much large, and some economists say that they need this contribution needs to be recorded in the GDP as well. Archana, thank you very much. We're going to hear from one of those economists in a moment. But one company that is looking to benefit from that fast-growing economy that we just heard about there is Air India, which is owned by the Tata Group. Campbell Wilson is its CEO. If you look at the size of the opportunity in India, it's already the world's most populous country. It is growing from an air travel perspective at 10% compound annual growth rate domestically and 7% internationally. And it is a hugely underserved market from an Indian carrier's perspective. So the connectivity opportunity from India to the rest of the world to serve not just the 37 million people in the diaspora, but the business opportunities in India becoming a more important part of the global supply chain. 
there. We get one company looking to benefit from that growth. Let's pick up on those points that、uh, Chinna made there about how easy it is to actually measure India's economic growth with the organised and unorganised sectors. Arun Kumar is an emeritus professor of economics at the Jawaharlal Nehru University. He gave me his reaction to today's figures. Construction has done very well. The manufacturing sector has done very well. It's like as if a momentum is building. But I think what we have to do is we have to understand tax collection has added a lot, and that's why it's coming at eight point four percent instead of the six point eight percent of what people had expected. That is an important point that you make there,、right. and tax collection is something that the Modi government has tried to increase in India because it has always been quite low, hasn't it? But whatever the figures are, yeah, India is an economy that is growing faster than most others in the world, isn't it? Well, sort of, because unfortunately, what happens is the data that comes in is from the organized sector. The data from the unorganized sector doesn't come in. Now, organized sector is fifty-five percent of GDP. The unorganized sector is forty-five percent. So, we are assuming that the unorganized sector is growing at the same rate as the organized sector is growing. But unfortunately, what's happening? All reports are that the unorganized sector is declining. If the unorganized sector is measured independently. Then you know the rate of growth would not be so large. But that is not an easy thing to do because it is by its nature unorganized. How possible is it to get accurate data on that sector? That has been a problem because, and that's why the government also used to do a survey once every five years. But the last survey was done in two thousand fifteen sixteen, and the next survey in two thousand twenty twenty one that wasn't done and hasn't been done since then. So therefore, we are forced to assume that the organized sector and the unorganized sector are growing at the same rate. But what is visible all around us is, like for instance, in the trade sector. In the trade sector, the e-commerce and the malls they are doing very well, but the neighborhood stores are declining. So that's why my argument has been that we are not growing at seven percent or thereabouts, as the government keeps saying. We are probably growing more like two percent or thereabouts. When we're talking. About India's economy, the black economy is a substantial part of it. So, could it actually be that the growth is even more than we we are actually recording on official figures because the black economy is so big in India? You're absolutely right. The growth rate of the Indian economy is larger than what the government declares because the black economy is as a share is rising. However, what the black economy does is it lowers the investment productivity. So, for instance, it's like digging holes and filling holes. So, we set one person to dig a hole during the day and set another person to fill the hole in the night. So, next morning there's zero output, but you know, two people have earned an income. So, I call this activity without productivity. Can I ask you a question? This is not just about India; it's about many different economies because we have elections in many parts of the world this year, and the economy will be a key reason why people vote. How much can we trust economic figures that are produced by governments? Do you think? So, as I'm, I'm trying to suggest that the government's figures are not quite there, but but that's not India, just an India problem, is it? That is a global yeah, problem. I mean, if India's figures are so badly off, then other developing countries' figures probably are also way off the actual mark. But in India, I think what has happened in the recent times is that it's not the economy that has mattered; it's more the social, it's more the Other narratives that have been created in India, you know, the the party in power won handsomely, in spite of the fact that large number of people were in、uh, desperate situations because of demonetization. Similarly, after the pandemic, large number of people lost、uh, family members. But when the elections came, the party in power won. 
because they have created a narrative. Well, yeah, that is what you would say, but the, many others would say the reason they win is because they have brought economic growth to India. They have taken millions of people out of poverty. It is an economy that's moving very quickly. We just had a report recently in the last few days from uh, Jeffries, the bank, saying that India would be the third largest economy in the world by 2027. Well, not if I'm right, because I've been arguing that the rate of growth is not more than 1% or 2%, and therefore we're still not the fifth largest economy. And if the rate of growth continues at 1% or 2%, we're not going to be third largest economy in the next three years. Similarly, now, even though unemployment is at record high, recently we had police jobs in the Uttar Pradesh state, uh, 60,000 jobs and 4.6 million people applied. But for that it. has always been the case. That is not new. That is, I mean, I've seen that in India when I was there. 10 years ago, we've always had a right. huge number of people applying for government jobs. That is not something that is a new phenomenon. But, but that's increased. You know, the number of people applying for these few jobs, like in the 2019 for 35,000 jobs in railways, about 12.5 million people applied, you know. So numbers That are is growing. also to do with an increase but, in population. Well, partly population, but also we are not able to generate enough jobs. Arun Kumar there on those latest figures. I mean, Emma, it's a fascinating year. Elections in the UK and the US and India, many other countries, and there will be so much attention on that economic data, a lot of it that comes from government. Absolutely. More than half the world is going into the elections um, in the next year. And, uh, you know, to paraphrase a comment about how elections are won, it's the economy stupid. I mean, that kind of growth is, is something that the sort of developed world could only dream of around seven and a half percent forecast for the full year. The U.S. forecast for 2.1 percent growth. The U.S. actually in rude health when it comes to the economy, which will play a large part of the election campaign. Japan and Canada are around 1% projected growth for 2024. And then the UK, Italy and France in between sort of half percent and 0.7%. So there Mm. is growth, but it's definitely better in emerging markets and in India. Yeah, it certainly is. Now, let us start with, let's look at some other figures that have come out today. Germany, which is known often as the sick man of Europe, they are still struggling there. The number of people out of work in Germany increase more than expected. Professor Enzo Weber is from the Institute for Employment Research at the University of Regensburg. The German economy is stuck in uh, in an economic downturn, but what we see in the labor market is that it remains rather robust. So uh, employment is still increasing. There's no job in employment. Uh, the layoffs are still relatively low. But what we also see is that unemployment figures are increasing, and that is uh, presumably due to structural problems. So we have hysteresis effects since the beginning of uh, corona. The work incentives for unemployed are rather low. So that is the type of problems uh, we have to deal now. The qualification of many unemployed is rather low. But in general, uh, the labor market resists the downturn. We lost our humanity. We lost our dignity. We got punished for something we did not do. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. Our young lives were flipped upside down. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. The workplace has changed a lot for many of us over the past few years. You might have started to hear phrases like quiet quitting or seen the hashtag lazy girl job on social media as people re-evaluate what they want their work lives to look like. It's all about settling for good enough at work rather than always striving for the next thing and focusing more on life outside of work. Here, looking at this phenomena, is Claire Williamson. 
Good morning! This is your daily reminder that being mediocre is not always a bad thing. Here's how you can get a lazy girl job today. I always encourage you to think outside of the traditional career box because the old methods are long gone. The future of your career success is staying adaptable to new career strategies. The new year is upon us. There's no more room for I'll fix this. The case for not always striving for perfection and prioritizing other things apart from work has only grown since the pandemic. Gabrielle Judge from Colorado became a TikTok sensation in 2023 with the hashtag LazyGirlJob that's had 43 million views. I started in the tech industry. That's where I come from. That's what my degree is in. And so I grabbed the, you know, the dream job, the one that, you know, your parents are really proud of. Everyone's super excited that you have it, you know, great benefits, things like that. And what I truly learned after a year and a half of being there, that doing good work just meant more work and maybe not getting paid correctly. And so I started to rethink everything. And so that's where my lazy girl job ethos like really started. I just didn't have this like, you know, cutesy marketing term for it yet. My name is Jamie Ducharme, and I am a health correspondent at Time magazine. Last year, Jamie wrote an eye-catching article entitled The Case for Mediocrity, about why we could benefit from not taking work so seriously. It was something I had been thinking about for several years at that point, really starting in 2020, a year where I think a lot of people were reevaluating various aspects of their lives. I was also writing a book at that time. And, you know, for many writers and journalists, writing a book is this huge goal. And it was for me, it was outwardly the most impressive thing I had accomplished in my career up to that point. But I was also not doing great mentally. I was worried about the book all the time. I wasn't sleeping well. I was anxious. And that's when I really started to think about the role that I wanted work to play in my life and, and what mediocrity meant and how it could actually potentially be a good thing. Mediocre means ordinary or average, which in a work context is usually quite negative, and they're not really words I'd associate with Jamie. I don't think it has to mean that you're kind of not trying all that hard and mailing it in and, and just kind of doing subpar work. What it means to me is doing the things that I've decided are important well, but not pushing myself to do this next thing just because it will look impressive or to constantly feel as though I have to be moving up. And these attitudes are being felt by employers, as I found out at a recent Women in Business lunch, where I met Margot who runs a number of hair salons across London. Hello. Hi there, I've come to the networking event. Is it women in business? Yeah, that's the one. Thank you very much. There is a big change in uh, employees' routine, I believe, in the fact that they really want to focus on their mental health and their freedom. So there is a trend regarding uh, the way they want to work. And I would say that many people want to work part-time now to make sure they have time for other things. Much of this resonates with what I heard from Gabrielle Judge and Jamie Ducharme, who are taking control over the way they work. But that's not always an option. There is certainly a degree of privilege in being able to, to outwardly say I'm going to take my foot off the gas a little or, or in saying that I'm going to try a little bit less hard. I understand that this is a privileged position to take. I think the closest bit of criticism that I got to that point was a teacher who wrote to me and said, I loved what you wrote, I agree with all of it, but I don't see a way that I can implement that in my work. Essentially, being mediocre 
is not an option if you want to be a good teacher. If you want to hear Claire's full report, just search for Business Daily wherever you get your podcast. Today is a bit of a bonus. There's an extra day in the calendar. It is, of course, a leap year. That's the moment when we try and sync things up with the Earth's actual movement around the sun. In France, a newspaper is published just once every four years on this very leap year day. I've been speaking to its editor, Jean Dondy, and asked him how he would describe his once every four year newspaper. You are going to be surprised by by my answer, but our newspaper is a daily newspaper. <laughs> that means that it's exactly like a daily newspaper, with the the, the same model, the same uh, the same kind of articles. But the the only thing every article must be well funny. I don't know if you will find it funny, but we have to find our article funny, and we hope. That the pleasure we have to to make the the newspaper will share we we could share it with uh, all the the people who will buy it. Well, it is quite funny, isn't it, that you have a daily newspaper that comes out once every four years. So that's a good start, isn't it? It's not my fault if uh, the the twenty nine of February is only one time every four years. Not my fault. Would you like it more often? No, no, I'm too lazy for that. When did this start? It starts in 1980. A group of friends who decided to do a joke, uh, but many people asked for the, the the newspaper, so the joke was a success. Now we are obliged to to serve the the, the people who want to to continue the the adventure. Why only once every four years? <laughs> the fact is that I think it is a success because it is very rare. If we have a newspaper every year. It won't be a sa- the same success. People want to have our newspaper because it is an exceptional news- newspaper, because it is, uh, it is an exceptional day. How much does it cost to buy your newspaper? And do you sell enough of them to recover the costs of printing it? Well, uh, yes, uh, the, the, the cost is a bit less than five euro. We are very lucky, but don't tell anybody we do not pay our journalists. So that's why it's not a problem for us to have a good budget at the end. Well, as a fellow journalist, I, I don't think I can approve of that particular behaviour, but we will move on from that for a, for a minute now. What's in this year's edition? What have you been working on for the last four years? On the first page, we have two uh, main articles. The first one is, why do we have to to study very hard at school now it's so easy to be intelligent we are all going to be intelligent you just have to press a button of the the computer and with artificial intelligence you know we are all now very intelligent so it's very easy to 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 be successful you do have a lot of time don't you to prepare so this edition's out are you already thinking of the next edition a few ideas going around in your head or when do you start one year in advance one month in advance well, uh, we'll we'll think about next one tomorrow, but we just think we we do not work. We take some notes, uh, listening to the radio, to the looking at the TV, uh, reading the press, and we 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 take the news on in a in a box, and uh, we'll see three year and a half later if it is still funny or not. If people think about it, uh, if it is still in the actuality or not. So as every journalist, it's always in a hurry at the end. 
Emma, Sean, Dante there. They hope to sell 200,000 copies. It's quite nice to work for a business that only operates once every four years, one day every four years, isn't it? Well, I was just thinking about AI. According to Goldman Sachs, we'll all be working part-time in the future, thanks to AI. So perhaps you'll get your wish. Who knows? (laughs) Emma, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. That goes back, doesn't it, to the package that Claire Williamson did for us on life outside work and how increasingly important that is. Roger Hearing will be discussing that, I'm sure, on Business Matters later on Thursday. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers. It's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark.